We here at Untitled Film Project Podcast are members of the Music City Film Critics Association. And while we are not on strike with those that are part of sag After, we want to make sure we support the community that is on strike because we want to support creators and those that are putting in important work for this. Go to Entertainment Community Fund and you can make a donation today. You can support actors, you can support writers. There's so many people in this community that make things happen that you may not realize, but it's important work that they do. EntertainmentCommunity.org. Make a donation today. And we'd like to mention that we are not influencers. We are not paid by movie companies. We are not working in cooperation with them. We are reviewers. So while we are reviewing movies, we are not crossing any lines. Welcome to the Untitled Film Project Podcast. Jeremy Gover, Justin Bradford, and myself, Jim Chandler. We're talking about Oppenheimer, the much-hyped documentary about the brilliant, arrogant, and sometimes naive physicist who led the Manhattan Project to build the very first atomic bomb that would change World War II and the world forever. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. Let's get our initial takes on Oppenheimer. Let's start with Jeremy K. Gover. So when you leave the movie theater and you're just in amazement, it says something about the film you just watched. When that's a good thing, okay? Like Tenet, for example, another Christopher Nolan movie. I went and saw it twice. I still have no idea what I watched. (laughs) So I was amazed there, but I don't. It's not the same, right? Yeah. I leave Oppenheimer, and I'm just so just in shock and awe, not of the story necessarily, but just of the filmmaking, of the presentation, of the grandioseness of it all. It's, you know, uh, the word awesome is thrown around. It's way overused in our society, right? You know, it's just part of the common vernacular, right? Well, it used to mean something big, like huge, larger than life. That's what Oppenheimer was for me. It was awesome. Yeah. Justin Bradford, what did you get on your initial take? Well, it was awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Can we all agree? He's already biting my stuff. For me, Oppenheimer was a nonstop three-hour masterpiece where my heart was pounding the entire time. And while it is very dialogue-heavy in terms of the storytelling... It's the music from Ludwig Göransson adapting to what's on the screen that is just keeping the intensity rolling. Even in moments where there's interrogation or in moments of just straight up small dialogue, it's the music behind it that is a driving force for this film that it blends so well together in terms of the storytelling that my adrenaline was pumping the entire time in terms of seeing this. The cast was incredible. A huge tremendous cast amazing performances from Killian Murphy from Robert Downey Jr. from Emily Blunt from so many people in this that I foresee multiple awards nominations coming from this film on acting not just on the the, mm-hmm. the, the film itself from Christopher Nolan but on the acting in general well this is arguably Robert Downey Jr.'s best acting performance arguably not saying it is but you could definitely make a case for being his ex- best acting performance in this and I just, I loved it. I loved the storytelling of it. I loved it in IMAX. It was visually stunning in terms of the way you're throwing things in there and then also addressing the problems 
that it presented in terms of the actual real life problems that were presented in this and and the thought processes behind what happened what did we do what did we set did we set the world on fire with this so i I appreciated the approach to it i appreciated the film so much and it is one of those things that you might only have to see it once for it to make its its impact on you because it definitely made its impact on me and imax for all the talk of the IMAX format and the dedication to practical filmmaking and what he puts into his craft, Christopher Nolan, I think this movie succeeds on the humanity of its characters and the life of Oppenheimer and the people around him and the situation of the time is so complicated, both he and the world, uh, that this movie was able to take that and make it so nuanced that it just I mean it was set off by the I think the brilliant acting of I definitely would I would give an award already to Killian Murphy and Robert Downey Jr. and uh, the director's ability to get that out of them that uh, it for me leading up to it it was all about the filmmaking when I was watching it it was all about the story and I was lost. My heart was also pounding from beginning to end. And that's because I think everybody in this movie did their job perfectly. And the score is in no small part uh, a play in the fact that this came off so well. We're talking about Oppenheimer. It's in films, finally. And before we get to anything about the uh, the way they made this movie, because that's what we've been talking about for so long, uh, let's talk about some of the, let's say, performances. Uh, people that you saw in the movie that really made an impression and maybe couldn't have done, you know, without them, this movie wouldn't have been as great. Who do you want to call out? I mean, Killian Murphy. He finally gets his opportunity to be the lead. You look at the opportunities he's had working with Christopher Nolan, where he is a, a supporting actor, even just a character actor in some of his pieces. But here, he is put at the forefront, and he just embraces the role of J. Robert Oppenheimer, I think, so well, to where people may confuse and think, is that really him? I think he embraces the yeah. role so well, he portrays it so well, and shoot, you would never think what his true accent is <laughs> when seeing yeah. the way he's able to pull this off and mm-hmm. what he does in so many films as well too i think this is an opportunity for killing murphy to really be, show how talented of a performer he is and that's what's incredible to me is him robert downey jr the same way in terms of lewis strauss strauss right that's the way he really embrace the whole it's not strauss it's strauss right strauss. his performance when you look at side-by-side pictures as well and the embodiment of it and even just looking at maybe old film that might be available in terms of just body movements and everything, he embraces that role so well too. I think those are the two that stand out the most to me in terms of just outstanding performances and Robert Downey Jr. showing, especially post-Marvel, he is an actor. He's not just Iron Man that some people became, became known for or just Sherlock Holmes, which he was great in those roles. This is a true acting performance from Robert Downey Jr. With meat. It's it's so meat on the meat. bone. Yes. Uh, yeah, and I also agree with it. Killian Murphy, uh, I think, pulled off something magical in two ways. One, uh, he had to display an intelligence and, and do it without words. I mean, like, sometimes he did use it through dialogue, but I think 
his eyes and his facial is in, in <laughs> the way his face moves. Uh, he definitely exuded this. There is so much going on in this head uh, that you can't even fathom what's there. So I totally bought that he was one of the great minds, right? And then throughout the movie, uh, with very little dialogue, but mostly with the expressions on his face, he was able to give us the the quandaries. You know, the you know, what have I done to this earth? Uh, you know, wh- where do my passions lie? Where do they not lie? Within, like, I don't care about politics. I don't care about finance. Uh, yeah, I looked at communism, but uh, then I, it, it, you know, it, it was almost boring to him. He had higher things to think about. And Killian Murphy was the one that I think was able to pull that off with just the most minute changes in the way he was looking at the camera. I was amazed. And I think for that reason, if he's not nominated for Best Actor, he may not win. He's going to be nominated. No, no, no. no. Well, no, but it's July. He can be nominated. There's a lot of stuff that comes out, especially home run sure. hitters in November, December. So I'm just saying, like, if he's at least if he's not at least nominated, it's a crime. He's going to be nominated. Because yeah. his, you're right, his facial... Great acting is delivering great lines. Brilliant acting is acting around the lines. Mm-hmm. And he did every ounce of that for three effing hours. The stage presence. In Oppenheimer, yes. But not in a flamboyant way. No. In a subtle, angry, confused, you know, turmoil. Burning. And yeah, all the all those things that aren't just like you know, like right now, like if you asked me ask me to, like I could I could probably come out with something that's like angry. I could probably act angry, sure. right? I can act like I'm happy. That's those are like the main colors of the Crayola packet. <laughs> Black, <laughs> right. brown, green, blue, right? He's operating in fuchsia and he's, mauve. He's got and the all thoughts kinds of 64. Of, it's, yeah, I don't know. I was going to say 144, yeah, yeah, like the big one. It's insane. Right. So, uh, yeah, he he, he was... Uh, um, plenty of things were great. He was outstanding. Yeah. And Robert Downey Jr., uh, for a guy who has melted into our brain as Iron Man and maybe Sherlock Holmes, uh, I completely... I, I lost the fact that I was watching Robert Downey Jr., and I was watching a character, and I was watching a historical character. Uh, he just did it so well, and he did it without trying. I, I honestly think he's that good. You know, it's well, like he's he, got he's got quite a resume, though. He does. Everyone, he does. Bradford's right, and you're you, you allude to it. Iron Man is definitely top of mind for everybody. Okay, sure. But he's got. If you look at his projects, his resume, it's especially pre Marvel. Yes. It's it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean he's got some really great. Even if the movie wasn't great, he was good. And you you know who else stood out? And it, it took a second to click who it was, but Harry S. Truman, played by Gary Oldman. Yes. What? <laughs> See, I, I had the same reaction See? when I left the theater. Wait, I, wait, wait, wait. I wait, looked wait. up. Who, I had to look up who played Harry Truman because I thought, wow, this guy was perfect and he's not in the movie very long no but when i saw that it was gary oldman i my jaw dropped and hit the (laughs) hit the steering wheel because i was looking it up in the car outside of the movie theater and i thought how did he do that gary oldman is like the vince gill of acting Uh uh-huh never any controversy around him doesn't care about buzz or publicists just who cares about tmz i'm just going to go about my business and make a living 
and, and be great at and be the best and, and Gary, wear prosthetics and, and Gary Oldman <laughs> yeah. I mean look at that's that's awesome yeah so that's, so speaking and going along with that we knew this was a huge cast we saw it just from the trailers sure but there were still oh, quote unquote surprises yep of now I won't even want to say cameos because there's too many big names for it to be a cameo it was a there were a piece of the there were a cog in it that they were important piece that there were still faces that surprised me that when they were appeared on screen like they're in it too I mean Casey Affleck I yep. didn't really didn't know, know I mean you have Academy yeah. Award winner Casey Affleck in, involved in this and, there, and plus so many others I mean Jack Quaid right I mean, we the... saw Josh Peck in a trailer but still it's like seeing so many people from different backgrounds of acting as well come together it shows how thoughtful they were in casting certain roles that they weren't just going for huge names they're going for different levels of Hollywood yeah. in this and I truly appreciated that as well yeah yeah it, it was I mean there Matt Damon I mean we're not even we haven't even mentioned Matt Damon right. who you know <laughs> turns in a, a terrific performance 99% of the time he is like so good I think you can easily like underrate him uh, easily yeah you know? I, I, I think so because I'm on my drive over here I thought about is, cause I, was, I was going through the list I'm like man awesome 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 okay it wasn't that he did poorly he's Matt Damon he's Matt Damon we're right. taking so, it for granted so I'm like okay like, is it, like I believed he was a general mm-hmm. right but it was still Matt Damon. Right. I'm not saying he, he played the part. He played right. the part. He did, but it's there was nothing special about it. I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so sure. then one that had a good reaction in the, in our theater was Rami Malek. Yeah. Yes. He appeared. You saw people go, "What? You you heard you heard the the voices of he's in it too." <laughs> Did not expect that. There's so many things the trailer didn't show us of who's going to be in this movie, and I love that. I love the little surprises of seeing people in certain roles, but but I was not lost in that. Like they didn't distract from the film. It was just for me. I was excited to see them be in the film. Let me ask you about Amsterdam. Okay. Okay. Amsterdam's an ensemble cast. We all saw that together, right? Yep. How do we compare the ensemble cast in Amsterdam, where the movie, the project was kind of like okay, but the performances were like Margot Robbie was tremendous. Okay, Christian Bale tremendous, yeah. but the this is different. The story is great. Is the would you put that ensemble cast? Would you put that when we have to vote for that for the Music City Film Critics Association Awards at the end of the year? Are you putting this movie? Are you putting Oppenheimer on the ensemble cast list? Boy, that's a tough question. That's why I'm asking. I think right now I wouldn't necessarily okay because of what other films may come out. Like for instance, Asteroid City is more ensemble cast. I agree with that. Sure, compared to this one because you had true leads and support. And not like full ensemble. Right, but we get three votes. One. So uh, I know. Right. Like right now, I wouldn't because I want to see what else is going to come out with okay. an ensemble cast. Because yeah. Asteroid City is definitely going to Haunted be. Haunted Mansion there. might be up there. Haunted Mansion could sure. be. But Asteroid I, City, I think, I is the think, ensemble. I agree with that. In Oppenheimer, uh, the, the tiers of acting, uh, I guess, uh, input is, is different. Okay, because uh, while you may have in Asteroid City, you've got this, this tier of actors, and then you've got a bunch of extras right Mm -hmm. uh so you have a great ensemble cast in oppenheimer you do have like the absolute lead in killian murphy's oppenheimer but then i think you hit every spectrum and level of how somebody can contribute to a movie i agree with that all the way down to you know background characters so there's no clear distinction between uh, you know, maybe Robert Downey Jr. is is definitely going to be a best supporting actor mm-hmm. because he doesn't have as much screen time. 
but everybody contributed anywhere up and down that spectrum. So I don't think it it fits the category of best ensemble. Okay. He explained what I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> talk about one of the other things that Christopher Nolan is known for in his movies in various ways. Almost every single movie he makes is about time in the flow of time. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Tenet is, you know, Inception. There's so many. Uh, This movie, uh, to me, did a remarkable job of jumping back and forth from the formation of Robert Oppenheimer as a as a young man in his studies, both you know United States and in Germany, and then you know we're jumping ahead to hearings about uh, you know Robert Downey Jr.'s Strauss character, uh, you know, to being named part of the cabinet, which is at the towards the end of Oppenheimer's story, then back to where they're interviewing Oppenheimer and questioning his. Uh, you know, whether he's treasonous and whether he gave secrets to the enemy. There's no way I could have ever conceived someone could put that on screen, yet Christopher Nolan did it. And, and how it starts where it started. Like in the movie, I almost thought it was a featurette. Yeah. When the movie started, I'm going, oh, no, they're jumping right into this. And it seems like you take the two ends of the sandwich and they're just coming together as mm-hmm. the movie's progressing. Because you have the two yes. ends of the spectrum, and they're bookcasing it, and, and right, and they're they're building to the boom. Yes, which we all know the bomb and explosion is coming, and I think that works in its favor because all those things factor into how you view the bomb and the explosion that they were hoping to get, and uh, to me it was amazing. And the artistic delivery and artistic choice of not showing the bomb. Right. Like, Only show the test. Actually, yeah, show the test, yes, but not show the... Like, everyone's like, oh, Hiroshima, right, Nagasaki, right? Mm-hmm. We're waiting for that. But they don't show that. They show the point of view of the town who's kind of sequestered. Yep, waiting. And then waiting for the news. And they hear it on the radio, they hear it on the radio like you would back in the day. So they deliver it to you that way. And then all of a sudden, there's the aftermath of that, right? So yes. it was the, the, the artistic choice to not show a bomber flying over Japan, dropping the bomb, or the bomb hitting the actual land. Like, they didn't show any of that. And that was, I thought that was so well done. I didn't yeah. want one way or the other. I, I, I trust Christopher Nolan's filmmaking so much that I'm like, whatever you want to give me is fine. But I left, I left thinking that. I left thinking like, oh, they didn't show us that. And it worked. Yeah. And I thought it was perfect for the time when we have an age now where we know things almost instantaneously yes. all over the world. You know, they had to wait days to find out if what they created in Los Alamos actually worked in the war on uh, on the two cities in Japan. And going along with that scene where Oppenheimer has to is giving a speech to the town, that scene hit me so much because speaking of time, of how quickly the remorse set in yeah. for Oppenheimer because you have... Well, first of all, in terms of the sound, we hear in the trailer the stomping sounds yes. that's mm-hmm. from that scene. We didn't know what that was from. Mm-hmm. It sounded like a train, almost. Yeah. And then we finally, it's revealed that that's from that scene right there, which obviously plays through in his mind so much. And you even have face melting from the explosion. You have so many different people dying. You have people, death surrounding him immediately and showing how quickly 
from celebration mm-hmm. to remorse, how quickly the time was involved there for his brain to just flip the and, switch. And to go back and forth. Yes. And to go back, like, like yes, I have remorse in this moment, and in this other moment, I complete defense of, I did the right thing. Because he feel like he had to congratulate the town on the work they did. Yeah. He's the spokesperson, and yet he's saying these things, like, bet the Japanese didn't, while also in his mind, oh my God, what have I done? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, it also along the time, uh, the use of color and black and white. Yes. Uh, we talked about how they had to develop. They didn't have black and white IMAX film ever. It had to be created for this movie. And he used it <laughs> perfectly. And uh, I don't know if I agree with this. A lot of people have said, oh, if it's in black and white, it's kind of an objective history. And if it's in color, you're getting it from a character's perspective. Would you agree with that assessment of how color was used, or did you see it another way? You know, I haven't thought as deep for that yet. So for me, I would want to talk to Hoyt Van Hoytema to see, because he's director of photography, right? Yes. Working with Christopher Nolan, as they've done on so many different projects. I think that's something where we want to dive deeper in, because I think there's that, it's a very interesting perspective. I haven't even thought of that yet. Mm. Of of where what the, what is taking place there too because there's there's still so much time now that people are going to have to start diving into this film what's real what's not what's real what's not even though overall I think most people are looking at it as more of a documentary that's been dramatized instead of mm-hmm. a dramatized documentary if that makes any sense at all oh yeah um, that's what I feel like so I kind of trust that perspective a little bit more now that you mentioned that yeah uh, there's something and I will you know uh, for the YouTube version of this podcast uh, we'll include in the you know more information drop down you know <laughs> uh, a link to a video that was made probably eight nine months ago It'll be right here yeah <laughs> and that uh, that probably I don't know 20 minute documentary uh, was made before this film so you're you're getting kind of a historical perspective and I think you'll be amazed at how accurately, at how more of a, you know, biography or documentary it is than it is a dramatization. So sure, it's a dramatization, but like, it's so based in what really happened from the stuff that I've been watching that I was just blown away. Okay, so I did mention him, Hoy Ben Hoytema worked with Christopher Nolan on Dunkirk, Tenet, Interstellar, and plus other films like Nope, uh, Ad Astra, so many different films. Obviously, an extremely, extremely talented person in the industry. Some of the most beautiful films ever created. Right. I mean, you just think about the work that he's done with Christopher Nolan, and then you add on all these other ones mm-hmm. that yeah. have looked so beautiful and have been wonderfully done. I wanted to get your perspective in, in terms of we're seeing so many things through Oppenheimer's mind, the flashing of, of molecules and things exploding and how we're, these are flashing images into us. And from that perspective, did that distract at all? I appreciate it because I think it's putting perspective into the film of what's actually being led up to in this. And I just feel like it's beautifully done with the director of photography, especially in IMAX yes. and how they're utilizing the full screen to the effect of it's flashing in your mind to almost give you these these images that are going to stick with you through the entire movie. And they're all practical effects. Yes. Nothing is CG. Nothing in this movie is CG. Maybe the title credits. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I appreciated what he did to try to give us a peek inside, here's my reference, the beautiful mind of Oppenheimer, because it is very hard 
for somebody to visually display intelligence and what an incredible mind is that we don't have, right? Because all we can do is, is kind of be voyeurs into a genius's brain. And I thought he did it really, really well. And I needed that because I needed to see that he, that there was nobody else that could have done this in this, in this time frame. Because usually, you know, when you get a really cool director, uh, you know, they have a cool idea, whatever it is, you know, even if it's not really a good director, but they have, you, you see like a good idea, you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. But it's more cool than actually practical or, or you know, like it didn't solve a problem. Yeah. In this case, it was cool and solved the problem. It gave the audience a glimpse into, it wasn't just like, oh, cool cutaway with the cool sound because then that, then, oh, it's astonishing. You know, it actually was part of the puzzle. And I really respected that. Now, you've been waiting for it, Justin Bradford, so patiently, <laughs> like, a, like a little kid who's waiting for the donut after church. Uh, would you like to talk about the score? <laughs> it was good. <laughs> I'm going to go get a cup of coffee downstairs. I'll be right back. <laughs> Ludwig Gorenson. He really has been putting out huge bangers for that long. Yeah. When you look at his resume, oh. it hasn't been that long, but he has quickly risen to prominence in terms of movie composer. And you look at the variety of sure. things that he's done as well. It's not just movies. I mean, he's also composing pop hits, R&B hits as well. He worked with Rihanna for Lift Me Up, which was in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Which he also, did the soundtrack for. Yeah. Which, he did the, which he did that the for. Also, Travis Scott, Alicia Keys. I mean, we're showing so much variety and depth of a musical composer here to be able to compose astonishing things like The Mandalorian. Yep. And the, his use of just different types of percussion instruments and flute and everything in that to Talk Wakanda about Forever, Black Panther, yeah, Black Panther, uh, Book of Boba Fett, uh, Turning Red, so a Pixar yeah. film as well, uh, Tenet, and now Oppenheimer, and this is one of those pieces that, with Oppenheimer, if you had a bad score for it, it would not have as much impact as a film. That's true. Truly believe that they had to yes. get it right. And Ludwig Göransson was the right one because the way he composes is so unique that sometimes it's difficult to tell. I love John Williams. I that is my favorite movie composer, my favorite composer. But you know when it's a John Williams piece, and that's totally fine for him to have his tell sure. that it's a John Williams composed piece. But Ludwig Göransson. He shows so much variety in what he does in his work. You can't always tell. And to me, that's amazing because he's not given telltale signs that it's his work. He is writing for what he is writing for. Like Creed. Yes. How can the guy who <laughs> created an amazing soundtrack for Creed uh, score this movie about one of the most impactful moments in history? And it's a driving force. The score for Oppenheimer is a driving force to this film that it's what's helping make your adrenaline pump. Yes, on-screen performances, the dialogue, every, the topics that are being covered are very important and you're going to be enthralled with that. But you add that layer of the score and what it is doing for this to help drive the message and to amp up because we all know music is building your emotion for what's happening next. But just the, the sounds of the stomping feet, the, the little pieces of, of driving emotion through it, this score is absolutely phenomenal and 100% can be nominated for me for, for best score of the, of the year, no sure. doubt in my mind, because this movie's not the same without Ludwig Göransson's score behind it. Yeah, and I, I think, and to be able to keep that 
kind of relentless, hard-in-your-throat feeling, even through a boring congressional hearing. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, like, it wasn't in the movie, but in real life, it would probably have been very boring, and it took, like, a month, right? You know, it was was something that, uh, through the use of the score, they were able to uh, bring that importance and the peril of what's going on even in just people talking into a microphone uh, that usually mm-hmm. we would associate with C-SPAN. <laughs> <laughs> Are you good, Gover? I know you're taking a nap. Oh, great. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> for our final takes and scores for this film, Oppenheimer. And let's begin with Justin Bradford. This is one of those films that, in order to fully appreciate what the creators have done, you need to see it in the way they intended it to be seen. And that's an IMAX. And I know it's difficult Mm -hmm. for everyone to see it in the full film IMAX, the 70 millimeter, which we saw, which is 600 pounds. (laughs) And, 11 miles long. Yeah, 11 miles long. That it's not available everywhere in the United States. So digital IMAX will be okay if, if you have to yes, do that. The biggest screen possible. The biggest screen possible. And here, here, here's a caveat to that, though. Not Dolby, but IMAX. Because there's a difference in screen mm-hmm. size. Yes. IMAX will expand and contract depending on the scene so much that it needs to be IMAX. You need to see it in IMAX. You have to see this film in IMAX. I cannot stress that enough. Right. That this is not one of those ones where you're like... I'll wait for it to come out on streaming. This is a movie theater movie. You must experience it in the way the creator intended. And at a time right now when you need to support creators, support creators in the way that they want it to be seen and not just streaming it. If you show proof that you support the work they do and the way they intended to be supported, which is by going to see an IMAX, you're further proving the importance of this creation. And that's why it's so important to me that you see this. Now, it's going to have its time. Nothing is going to kick it out of IMAX, just like Mission Impossible is kicked out of IMAX right. very quickly. By this film. This By this film. And Tom Cruise was not happy about that. Yes, well, this movie but, is staying in IMAX theaters for months. Yes, but and it's not this one of those things that you're going to notice in the moment. But afterwards, you're going to notice, oh, wow, the screen did expand a lot during that scene. Or it contracted a little bit here or expanded there. Or, my gosh, it was black and white, but still full IMAX 70 millimeter. It, it's incredible to see in IMAX. And I say that rant, say that I really love that we have the opportunity to see it in 70 millimeter IMAX by hearing the projector rolling behind us and hearing the noise of the projector. It takes you into the moment. And that's what this movie is so good at, is bringing you into a moment to feel like you're in the room as this is happening because it's so huge and it's an IMAX and you're seeing so many close-up visuals of things that are going on that Christopher Nolan and team did a fantastic job of bringing you into the room where it happens. And it, you feel it because <laughs> it's, it's, shake, it's shaking your seat. Yep. You're feeling everything. It's so quiet. It's almost like ASMR at times because mm-hmm. you have hundreds of people in a theater collectively knowing, oh, I should be quiet and really listen to the dialogue of what's happening right now. They did an incredible job, incredible cast, incredible performances. The score was incredible. There's not much that I can find wrong with this film. It was a little long, but I understand why it was long. I didn't feel that. 9.5. All right. Jeremy K. Gover. Okay. Uh, Give us a a lead up to your score on Oppenheimer. If you do not like exposition, 
in your films, <laughs> you are going to hate this movie. <laughs> because the Hopefully first, they know that going in. I know. They kind of film this. I know, but the first two acts are basically entirely exposition. So uh, enjoy that. I, I really like that. I, I, I liked the way they did it. Now, I'm not a fan of exposition. Right, we talked about it in, the, in Shazam two and all these other, you know, it's just it's, it's just okay. Shazam two reference in Oppenheimer. Well, wow. I'm, I'm, using, I'm using polar opposites yep. here, right? Oh I'm, yeah. All right. So you have all of a sudden there's a seven minute scene in the dungeon about with the Harry Potter pin and they're explaining what they're gonna do. That's not what this is. But the point is, is that it's still two, the first two acts, honestly, probably first what two hours of the film, two ten at least, sure. is essentially nonstop talking. And every word matters to what is happening, playing yes. out. Right? So, if you don't like exposition, you're going to hate this movie. So, it, uh, Bradford's right. It did feel long to me. There were times where it was three hours. But sometimes you can go to a two-hour, 45-minute film or two-hour and a half. And it's over. And you're like, whoa, wait, what? Like, I can't believe I spent that much time in there. This was not that. This felt the three hours long to me. Which is a problem, kind of. Not really. Because it was so great. Right again. When I left the theater, I was so impressed, so awestruck by what I had seen, what I had felt. The, there's A plus performances, acting everywhere. There's an A plus directing performance. There's cinematography that was A plus. Everything. The score was an A plus. I mean, there was so much great about it. But the first two acts were a lot of exposition, which I don't have a problem with. I'm just warning somebody. It felt long, which is half a point off for me because it shouldn't. And for me, the two other things I wanted to bring up that we didn't get to in the regular take was I thought the nudity was unnecessary. As a person, I enjoyed said nudity. As a professional, which always believes in fundamental, tighten up as much as you can. Nothing unnecessary. It's all got to matter. I didn't think... It was necessary. I didn't think it was needed for Florence Pugh to be naked. I didn't think that was. They could have done the exact. Could have had the exact impact to me. Uh, exa- they could have had the exact same impact on me if she was clothed, even in the sex scenes or even in the whatever. Like when she's when they're having the affair, that was all necessary. The scenes themselves were necessary. How they presented it, it seemed gratuitous to me, and I didn't. That, that's which is weird. But it's either here or there. That, now people don't care about that, but there are some that will. So I'm sure. just so that I took a little bit of points off for that because I didn't think it was necessary. I points. Well, half point, really. So, and then the last thing, and this is probably the most important thing out of all this, actually, was the score was too loud for me. The mix was not right. So there, this is a movie where every piece of dialogue matters. And it's quick thoughts. It's Killian Murphy talking, saying one line, almost like a question, and then somebody answering him right away. And the score got in the way a lot for me. I don't know if I have sensory issues. I don't know what the problem is. But for me, I battled throughout the movie actively sometimes with trying to figure out what is he saying what are the, what are the what's the dialogue being said all i can hear is the music and it was a problem so for those reasons as great as it was and as much as i left the theater being like this i'm in just amazed i give it a nine Oh, okay. I want to give it higher because that's how it made <laughs> me feel when i left the theater i texted a buddy of mine and i was like it gets an A. And he knows they never give out A's, ever. And so I, and he's like, whoa. And I was like, yeah. But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, well, the, the dialogue was a problem. It wouldn't be a problem if it was a comedy or if it was something that didn't really matter. You but had ev- me worried. Every dialogue matters. And I, that was it. I thought we were going to get like a 7.5. No, 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 I was no, going to no, throw no, hands. Yeah. No, no. I, I, I'm willing to say 
that I would have come at you like a tornado of arms no, and teeth. No, no, no. I'm willing to say that at the end of the year. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm willing to say that right now, as of the time we're recording this, this is the best picture of the year. Period. Spider Verse, you can you can give me an argument on because of the visualness of it. But the story itself was yeah, it was good, but it wasn't like ground. This is incredible. And so for that reasons, I give it a nine. This is Jim, and I I think sometimes you know it when you're there. Sometimes you don't. When you see something special mm-hmm. that you're not going to see very many times in your life. And I'm willing to call this Christopher Nolan's magnum opus. Uh, it's a true masterpiece. Uh, I think he took one of the most important stories in human history and with such skill and such beauty conveyed the complexity I was left speechless, and almost everybody in the theater wasn't speechless when they got out. But you'll see, if you haven't seen the movie already, and you don't mind spoilers because you're listening to this podcast or watching, uh, that people will quietly be having discussions about everything that they saw. And that is very rare. Um, It's... A near-perfect movie, and I don't even know if a perfect movie exists, okay? So uh, addressing a couple of things that you mentioned, Jeremy, about uh, the sound mix. Uh, I'm going to give the sound mix 99% out of 100 because there was only maybe two lines where I said, hmm, what? Wait, what was that? But I think this was some, one of the most difficult movies to mix, because of the, the, the volume of not only the s- score, but also some of the, you know, the sound effects, the stomping, the explosion, the way that was handled was incredible. It Agreed. was so, the quiet that they brought before the noise came was so powerful. So uh, I really thought that the sound mix was phenomenal. Uh, I agree, maybe it wasn't necessary to see Florence Pugh as naked as often as we did, even though it's just a small part of the movie. Sure. But uh, I'm, you know, I'm okay with that. I don't think it uh, detracted from it for me. And you know, if I was going to take every little thing that I found wrong, which was so hard to find, and subtract, I would have to give this movie a nine point five. But I can't because. This is one of those special movies that doesn't come along. I was thinking, okay, when 2001, A Space Odyssey, which many people, including Tom Hanks, I just saw in an interview, called like the greatest movie of all time that he watches four times a year. Uh, It is also one of those movies for me. It is so special, leaves people talking. And uh, like Inception, people are still arguing about the top at the end of that movie and and how incredible it was. Uh, this is so much better that this is the first time in this short podcast history of about a year plus that I'm giving a movie a perfect 10. Wow! It's time for the Untitled Film Project podcast's big question. And of course, we'd love to hear your answers. We'll give you ours first. Tell us how we're wrong or how unbelievably smart we are. (laughs) 
<laughs> the best score of a Christopher Nolan movie. What is that for you, Jeremy Gover? The Prestige. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> the answer is Jeez. the movie. Everybody forgets that he yeah, did. I know. The, the only answer I think. I mean, there's a lot of great. Okay, obviously, I'm not sure discounting any other ones, but my favorite, far and away, therefore, the only correct answer, is Inception, because it changed trailers forever. That alone changed movies forever after that. After that, that's all you heard is some sort of... You're right. It, it became an era for trailers. And, and if you go on like Pond5.com, for all you marketers out there, if you go on Pond5.com or you're trying to get some sort of music, like kind of uh, licensed music for your project, yeah. you'll if you look under cinematic or whatever the category is, you're going to get a lot of things that are very similar to... Wah. You're a lot of a lot. It's all going to be like a distant cousin of that. So yeah. my answer is Inception because it's a great score, but also because of its cultural impact on movies. That's a great. I like that. Hans yeah. Zimmer. Hans Zimmer. Yeah, he's great. great. I am also going to go Hans Zimmer with Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. That movie's. Oh my God. It. It so haunts me in the best way, and I can I can prove it in that if you looked at my YouTube history, <laughs> which, okay, don't look at all of it, but <laughs> if you looked at it over the course of the last, say, I don't know, five years, or ever since the movie came out, you're going to find at least once a month, I will stop and watch an entire section or entire YouTube video of somebody who's sat down in a rail station in the middle of, let's just say, Switzerland, and there's a piano, and they're going to be playing that beautiful piano piece, and everybody in that rail station is going to stop and gather around that either street musician or somebody who's just so talented and saw a piano and sat down and started playing it, and that's what they chose to play. And it pulls everybody around. And I, there's, to me, there's nothing like that. If you can sit at a piano in a place where people are trying to get somewhere else, and they're moving, and they don't want to stop for anything, and you have a score like Interstellar that can stop people in their tracks and say, no, I need to stay right here and listen to that. That's how I feel about Interstellar. So that's my answer. All right. Well, this is Justin, and there are so many good ones to choose from. You have the whole Dark Knight series. Yeah, sure. That are fantastic. Goes Obviously, without saying. Yeah. Go, goes without saying. I mean, he, he's associated. Chris Reynolds has associated himself with great scores with his films because you can tell he appreciates how important music is and telling the story. I mean, Batman obviously has its themes, but those are great scores that, are, that show darkness in, in the Dark Knight series. And then you obviously have Interstellar, uh, Oppenheimer now, Dunkirk was actually a really phenomenal score really as well. Um, Inception, I mean, Inception, some gr the great pieces in there, you have uh, Dream is Collapsing and Time are the two most popular pieces from that score in Inception, and it is great. But I'm going with Interstellar. For mine because day one the piece you're describing jim is the one with dun 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 mm -hmm. and then goes flowing piano piece 
Yes. And it's just beautiful. And you hear the notes in Interstellar flashes right into the movie for me. And then Cornfield Chase is another oh, big yeah. one. I mean, you have some major pieces from Interstellar that when I hear them, I can just listen to them because it's driving music and it visualizes for me the film. I can see the film when I hear those pieces, just like so many John Williams pieces do for mm-hmm. me in a lot of his films. Like Hans Zimmer is a genius as well. I mean, yeah. he has scored some great Christopher Nolan films. Interstellar for me, with my love for space, my love for travel, my love for all of that is the one for me that stands out the most. I love Inception. It is like a 1A, 1B for me. Sure. But the 1A is Interstellar. And, and with Interstellar soundtrack, there's a sentimentality and, and, a, and a romance that like, and there is no love interest in that film. Right, but it's it's that that beautiful love between his daughter and Matthew McConaughey's character that uh, you know just plays out in the music so well. So it's, it's not heartbreaking. Just, it's, it's heartbreaking it, too. It, yes, it'll tear you apart if you do not cry at that music. <laughs> you are a robot. <laughs> You're ChatGPT. So you've been listening to the Untitled Film Project podcast. We've been talking about Oppenheimer, the Christopher Nolan film that has just hit theaters. And we'd love to get your takes on it. And uh, was there a flaw that stuck out? Uh, Because we had trouble finding them. (laughs) Uh, Was there something about the movie that uh, we did not mention? And I don't think we gave enough attention to Florence Pugh and Emily Blunt. Uh, but then again, we have left out about 500 things that could have been mentioned in this movie. Uh, please call us out on it. So just go over to untitledfilmprojectpod.com. Gover has some incredible written reviews on there, all of our podcasts. Yes, 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 My yes. Heart flutters. <laughs> and then also on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Threads. TikTok. <laughs> threads you can find us on there as well too (laughs) Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the untitled film project podcast our first inside the brand new ufpp studios thank you for listening to the untitled film project podcast to support the show please rate review follow and subscribe original music by jeremy schwartz Special thanks to the Music City Film Critics Association. Editing and post-production by Jeremy K. Gover. Voiceover by Chad Bennett.